justliberty.org It's good for you and it's good for me Justliberty.org Justliberty.org Hi, this is Scott Henson, and you're listening to Just Liberty's Reasonably Suspicious Podcast covering Texas criminal justice, politics, and policy. My regular co-host Mandy Marzullo went under the knife last week, and we definitely wish her well. But in the meantime, our good friend Chaz Moore, the executive director of the Austin Justice Coalition, has agreed to fill in for her. Thanks for joining me, Chaz. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. Hopefully I can do a pretty good job of filling in for Mandy. Oh, I'm sure you're going to do great. Chaz, you spent last week in Washington, D.C., where you attended the 2020 March on Washington. Did y'all get everything straightened out up in D.C., or is there more to do up there? Um, um, unfortunately, no. You know, uh, it, it's still, um, you know, just like the the march in, in 63, um, the Million Man March in 95, um, it, it's, a, it's a moment to gather. It's a moment to reflect on... Uh, moments in 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 the country uh, movements in the country but um you know it's always work to be done right but i think it it was really good and also disheartening to see the families of victims of police violence and really you know zone in on the fact it's so many names and hashtags that we don't know right it was so many families of, of victims of police brutality and violence that we'd never even heard of um that was that was very interesting to me so but outside of that, it was it was really um, nice and, and uh, hopeful to hear from so many young voices and advocates and activists around the country. And, you know, of course, with 2020 being a, a huge election year, if not the most important election of our, <laughs> you know, of our lives, the, the, the message around voting and the importance of voting was definitely there. But um, really, the, you know, the message around unity and resilience and perseverance was was something that I really needed uh, to like, you know, kind of refuel me for the work we do here in Texas. But, um, and also, you know, living in Austin with, you know, a lot of white people, it was good to be around a lot of people that look like me um, and just, you know, share that space. So um, I was, I'm so glad I got, I, I got to go and I'm, I'm looking forward to going to the 60th anniversary in a couple of years. Yeah. It looked like a really good turnout there. Actually, the, the, the crowd was awesome. So I, I was I was teasing you before you went in the in the in the sixties. You know, you had Bob Dylan sing, you had Harry Belafonte. Did y'all did y'all have any good high end music uh, perform for you? Um, n- n- no. Well, not like um, you know, these big Beyonce was like Beyonce wasn't there, right? Beyonce and Jay Z didn't perform. Beyonce, but, what's the deal, man? <laughs> Come on. But but you know, um, they they did Step have step up, will you? They did have a really nice band. Um. And of course, you know, I, I, I was um, really humbled and honored to meet George Clinton, right? Who is a musical icon and legend, Sweet. right? So yeah, I mean, he didn't perform, but he was there. Yeah, um, what was that? What's George Clinton like? Um, it, you know, still with the funkadelic swag, he had like a all gold metallic um, get up on and outstanding. He had his goggles. He was, you know, very much mothership, right? So. Uh, I mean, I think that was probably my favorite part, just running into George Clinton and meeting him. And also, you know, running into um, Ayanna Presley, Rep. Omar, um, um, Corey Bush, who is, you know, uh, overnight rock star. So, I mean, it was definitely some some high profile people out and they were out amongst the people, um, you know, socially distant, taking pictures and stuff like that. But um, it, it was definitely it was it was it was a sight. Well, I'm sorry you had to come back to Austin and hang out with all these white people, but. 
what do you do? It's a, you at least got a break. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. Well, this has obviously been a summer filled with protests over George Floyd here in Austin, over Mike Ramos and Brian Manley, and you're just back from the National March on Washington. They're protesting in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Big picture. Talk to me about the end game. In your mind, what is the theory of change that takes all this protest energy in the streets and transforms it into institutional change in police departments? So, you know, I think I think the theory of change here is very simple. I, I just think, you know, the power structures that be, whether it's city council, city managers, mayors, um, state legislators, um, I think we just have to be willing to try to do new things, right? Like we know um, now, um, you know, whether it's, you know, if, if you want to go back to the 94 crime bill and if, or if you want to go back to like the Reagan tough on crime era, Anytime or every time we've invested more into the criminal legal system, um, the punitive criminal legal system, and really the, 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 the arm of it that starts all of it, the police departments, um, we, we do not get the results that we thought we wanted, right? We don't get safer communities. Uh, we don't get the better outcomes for low-income socio, um, socioeconomic um, communities. What we, what we got and what we get is mass incarceration. Uh, we get black and brown folks and poor people that are killed by police. So I think that, I think the theory of change is we have to try an alternative approach to public safety, right? I think we have to be willing to um, step back and say, you know what, maybe this thing that's called policing or policing as we know it isn't working, right? Like maybe, maybe we should try investing our dollars and um, our resources into other alternatives to public safety. Maybe we should try something different than policing because this is not working um, the way we, I think the way we all wanted it to, right? Um, you know, I grew up as a kid watching Family Matters with Carl Winslow, right? That's what I thought a cop was. And, you know, um, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, I'm looking at, uh, you know, Uncle Phil. Like, like, that's what I'm thinking, you know, a judge is, right? Somebody that can be fair and and all this type of stuff, but then, you know, come back to reality, um, you see, oh, this is not that. Um, so, you know, I, I think um, I think the theory of change is, is, is really getting radical, but not radical in the sense of like Molotov cocktails, radical in the sense of, you know, um, Angela Davis getting to the root of the problem. And if the root of the problem is, you know, like crime and harm, let's find out what's causing those things and let's find out a way to fix those things as opposed to punishing people that harm people or com commit quote unquote crime. And I think the only way we do that is by really um, getting back to like this American ingenuity of, 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 of discovery and trying something new and invention um, because we know what we have today in policing, whether it's 21st century policing, community policing, um, donut with a cop, you know, basketball with a cop. It doesn't, it does not work um, on a very fundamental level. So um, I just think, that, that, again, we just have to be willing to try something new um, and think outside of our own um, boxes. And I, I think we have to be willing to step outside of our own comfort um, and say, you know what, as an American, whether I'm Republican or white or whatever, um, other Americans are not safe when they call 911 or when um, police show up, right? And I think we owe it to one another as Americans and as humans and as people um, to say, you know what, like, yeah, we got to we got to do something different. 
It it is amazing how unwilling we are to experiment with some of these public safety structures. And and you hear the same just garbage over and over sort of justifying, you know, these these structures that are failing. Uh, we we're, we're going to talk um, more here in a little bit about slave patrols and history of Texas policing. But I've been reading all these these clips, you know, um, from the 1840s and 50s on on old slave patrols. And there was this one where this was this guy was saying, "Sure, the slave patrols aren't working that well and 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 the guys are just sort of wandering around town without really doing much." But that's because we have the wrong kind of people in that job. We need people who are more committed to the cause and who have, you know, their own skin in the game. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, okay, I've heard these arguments this year. No one's questioning the underlying structure. No one's questioning, okay, are we just doing something that maybe is problematic in and of itself, you know? And to see all that replicated you know, 160 years ago or something is really kind of nuts. Next up, I've known Chaz for about five years now, and ever since I've met him, he's been saying that modern police departments originated with slave patrols. This often made me think to myself, that's interesting. I really don't know anything at all about that history. But in the wake of the George Floyd protests, that meme has been floated widely. So recently, I undertook some historical research to figure out if that's true. But before telling you what I found, Chaz, I'm curious where you first came across that analysis of slave patrols and police. Um... So I was first, this was first brought to my attention, um, actually at the University of Texas. Um, I was, you know, taking AFR courses, and I think AFR 301, um, who was taught by Dr. Gordon at the time, um, he brought this up, and, you know, it was really um, fascinating to me, and, you know, it, it, it made so much sense once I, once I read about it, once I learned about it, um, and then also, you know, I think um, th- this my whole theory around the role of policing was was um was also um broadened when i went to the holocaust museum and you mm. look at the role of, of policing in, in in you know almost anything bad in history right fascinating um, yeah right um so you know it was but it was definitely um afr classes at at um university of texas that that told me that and you know i think for anybody um that has the time i think everybody should do themselves the due diligence to go find out about the origins of policing as we know it which is which is slave patrols well i have to say um as i went back and researched this um i've basically realized that no one has ever researched this topic for texas Mm -hmm. really that it's just not been something that anyone who's who's ever published anything has has actually delved into but I have gone back a little bit and tried to figure out, okay, is it true that it's really like the origin of policing? Is that it's like that's a pretty strong statement? And I think that is probably a slight overstatement. Um, it is an overstatement. Mm-hmm. Um, so in Texas, our slave patrols um, were created in 1846 with an act of the Texas legislature. And they created a structure where 
county government would operate multiple districts in each county and they would hire between four and six people in each district and uh and it was a part-time gig you you just did it at first once a month and so it was separate from and sort of parallel to sheriffs and constables and also city marshals which um were sort of the equivalent of the police chief so we did have sheriffs and constables before we had a slave patrol and um we had law enforcement that had sort of separate functions what you saw though first even the law enforcement that weren't slave patrols had a role in enforcing slavery enforcing apartheid enforcing separation between the races and more than that and i found this fascinating i went back and read clips from the 40s and 50s from a variety of, 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 of Texas papers, mostly really small town papers, actually, but, but some in Austin. And what you saw was over the course of like the 20 years leading up to the Civil War, people would start to conflate crime and runaway slaves, right? So, um, you know, oh, we have burglaries rising. We need to send more slave patrols out. And it was the assumption that, oh, well, if there's crime, it has to be because black mm -hmm. people are doing it. And so mm -hmm. let's, let's, let's send that out, send, send out the slave patrol. And up until the slave patrol and, and, and for the police departments, like the, the police departments didn't start to do any of this until after the Civil War. Um, Austin and Houston were sort of the first cities to create their own police department patrols in Texas, and they both did this right after the Civil War. What you had seen was, over time, the public had been sort of confusing the, the slave patrol with public safety to the point where the slave patrol was the thing they'd always call for, because that's what was visible. Before that, law enforcement had had a sort of a, a, a customer service approach, right? law enforcement was a bureaucrat who sat in the office and someone comes in and reports a crime and then they go out and deal with it and so and you you wait until someone reports it and so i feel like what i was seeing in those clips was once the slave patrols ended because there were no more were no were no more slaves the white pro-confederate population of the city was horrified that free black people might just wander the streets undeterred and began to call for reinstituting patrols to rein them in. And it was very explicit. So when the Austin Police Department was created, uh, Dr. Kevin Foster, who's a black studies professor at UT, um, had found these amazing quotes from the Austin City Council. Uh, the police department was created to deal with, quote, the fact that a large number of Negroes turned loose by their owners are congregating in and about Austin, making it necessary to organize a police force to deal with them. You know, they were worried about able-bodied Negroes who've abandoned the services of their employers or found loitering or rambling about or idly wandering the streets. Well, this was the justification for creating the Austin Police Department. It was literally like what the city council was saying from the dais, mm -hmm. you know, when they, uh, you know, were, were, were talking about creating that. And so 
where I've landed on this is while I think it's an overstatement to say policing originated in the slave patrols, I think that after the Civil War, people began demanding, white people began demanding that patrol function continue, mm-hmm. right? And, and slave patrols were, you know, the beginning of the modern patrol-based policing that we see now. Like to this day, you know, driving around, you know, in between 911 calls, you know, looking for things that might be going wrong is the fundamental basis for how police function. So that parole operation, not parole, the patrol operation is the part of policing that is this vestigial organ left over from slave patrols. And, and I feel like that the sort of patrol model is the part of policing that today creates most of the problems, Absolutely. right? People aren't concerned that when I report a murder or when I report a rape or when I report, you know, some problem that someone investigates, that's not what people are concerned about. It's the patrol function. Mm-hmm. And so while I think it's not accurate to say that policing as an institution originated with patrol, I think it is totally the case that the problematic parts of policing mm-hmm. are this like vestigial tale, you know, from from the old slave patrol model. Well, um, so, but I do, I do I do believe um, that some. So so maybe it's an overstatement to to maybe it's an overstatement if you use it as a blanket statement, but I do think there's some um, cities and jurisdictions in the country where the first form of "Quote unquote policing was slave patrol, right? Right. That might that may be. Yeah. I'm saying Texas. So for Texas, yeah. So yeah, that, that and we're very and we were a very late state. Yeah. I mean, you think about it. They, slavery only had like a 50 year history in Texas. Yep. Because the first white people came here in the 1820s. Yep. So uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Yeah. Other states, I can't really speak to that. Yeah. I was looking at Texas history. Yeah, but but you know, I absolutely agree. I think um, you know the fact that. Um, city council was saying this um, specifically that basically we need somebody to handle our Negro problem, and then they create a, the awesome police department after the slave patrol thing is whatever it's you know disappeared or whatever. Um, you know, I think that I think that's still like in the in the same vein, right? And I think um, it, it boils down to why black people, people of color, poor people feel um that police departments are not here to protect and serve everybody they're here to protect and serve the status quo and and the the rich class of folks you know i guess same thing with the role of police in the holocaust right when you look at um the people that were going around rounding you know up jews um (laughs) it was the police right um and you know that's not something we talk about a lot for some reason so, so yeah, you know, I think um, I think that is all very interesting, and uh, you know, I'm I guess, yeah, I mean, I I wish more people knew this. Um, I think this is something that needs to be taught, absolutely for sure. But but and but I I guess my question for you is, um, knowing that, or or if we can agree to this, can we agree that a the APD um, was created to patrol black people? Absolutely. Okay, so if we agree with that, or or is it reasonable for people? to to feel that there's no way to reform this particular police department 
this particular institution, right? Like, because a lot of people in the black and brown communities feel, they feel that, even though they may not know that was said about why the Austin Police Department was created, they feel that. Like, that's right. a very real reality to them, um, which is why a lot of people are no longer on the reform train. Um, they're just like, you know what, let's just not deal with the police department. Let's get rid of them completely. So, you know, and my question to, to you is somebody that's been doing this work for years and you've seen all the movements. Um, well, not all of them, but, you know, your, your fair not share. Not that old. <laughs> <laughs> um, do, do you think this this resurgence in the abolition movement, um, right, which is this is not new. This is this has been here. Then it, it was too far fetched for its time. Um, so that's how we got reform. And now we're back to, oh, maybe this is like, you know. Do you think abolition is the answer based on what you know um, about, you know, some of the history around police and policing in Texas? You know, that's a that's a great question, because there's so much bad history, especially when you look at Austin PD and, and you look at how explicit it was about its creation. You know, how can something created for such an, an abominable um, reason turn around and do good? you know, 150 years later or whatever it is. At the same time, every society has to have some way to sort of enforce your, your, your basic statutes, whether they're don't kill, don't rob, or, you know, pay your trade taxes or whatever it is. Right. Um, and, and I, one thing I found amazing and humorous was that, that the early city marshals and sheriffs, the main reason they were full-time and the slave patrols were part-time was all fee collection, right? Like law enforcement was being used to collect fees and to generate revenue. But, you know, there have been some sort of law enforcement, you know, long before there was, you know, even even in America, right? I mean, there there was a, a sheriff in Nottingham when Robin Hood was 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 going around. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's there's always been some need to say, uh you know, society has minimum laws, minimum standards, and we're gonna we're gonna hold people to account to those. And the reason I, that I'm hesitant to to go all the way to abolition for myself personally, and we've talked about this a little bit in the past, but you know, in the '90s when I came up working on these topics, and I was you know a young twenty-something guy working on police brutality cases and trying to stop the police from from shooting young black guys mostly frankly, most of the black community, not just in Austin, but really nationally, um, wasn't down with that agenda, right? I mean, post-Rodney King, the black community did not, like, rise up and demand police accountability. They mostly rose up in support of the 1994 crime bill. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the James Foreman book, Locking Up Our Own, is, is sort of the, the best piece of analysis about what was going on then. And, and I dealt with those folks up close and personal, like all the, the tough-on-crime black community leaders. There was a woman in Austin named Willie Mae Kirk um, who was very influential to me on these topics. And her son was Ron Kirk, who was the first black mayor of, of Dallas and later on Clinton's trade representative. 
And so, you know, he had reached such heights that, that Willie May in Austin Democratic politics was like royalty, mm-hmm. right? She, you know, when Ron was, was mayor of Dallas or in the Clinton administration, mm-hmm. she was all that. And Willie May couldn't stand me because I was on these topics. Oh, man, she was so mad that we even existed with the group pushing the, the for the police monitor and stuff like that. And she thought if the cops were shooting people, they were shooting the people who needed to get shot. And where she was coming from, and I spent a lot of time trying to understand where Willie Mae was coming from because she mm. was a good-hearted person. She was not mean. She wasn't somebody who was you know could who you could dismiss but where she was coming from was she didn't live far from here um where she was coming from was crime in east austin was rampant and the main victims were black people and there does need to be a baseline level of safety for anyone to enjoy freedom for anyone to enjoy liberty for your freedom to mean anything right if the strong just rule the weak then it doesn't matter if the government's not oppressing you. You're just on your own in a sea of chaos, and and the strong will spread, will, will will rule the weak. And you know she wasn't wrong to complain about the street violence and and the fact that this neighborhood and and I we're we're, we're having this interview at my house in East Austin where I've lived for, for thirty years. Um, that this neighborhood was really a rough place to be in the 90s. And and for someone like her, an elderly woman, a little scary, you know, to, to be in. Understandably, it was a little scary for me. There were moments that were scary for me. And, you know, I'm a six-foot, 200-pound-plus 200, 200 white guy. So she convinced me that it is not an illegitimate concern for black folks to want security in their neighborhoods, right? That her availing herself of her civil rights and the benefits of a free society require a baseline level of security that was not being provided in the 1990s in this neighborhood. And so so that's the balance. You know, I, I, I feel like when you say abolish the police, it's, it sounds trite, but the question becomes, well, what about those true security questions, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's, it's one thing we say, well, you're just arresting people who are drug addicts and really they need drug treatment or, you know, well, this is, you know, about a mental, mentally ill person. Really, we need more mental health treatment. But sometimes the strong just rule the weak and abuse power. And what do you do then? And so I feel like that those policing functions are legitimate and some of these others are not. It's one of the reasons that that I'm interested in this um, distinction of how patrol was grafted onto the policing model as its sort of separate thing, right? When someone comes and says, I was victimized, someone comes to the government and says, you know, I... I was raped, I was beaten, someone was murdered, something bad happened. I think it's legitimate for people to have an expectation that the government is going to assist in providing some baseline level of security there. 
But I feel like that this patrol function where we just go out and look to see if we can find you doing something and they're going to pull you over and roust you and you know, then that is, that has led to a lot of illegitimate policing functions. So that, that's, that's where I would land on that. You know, I'm somebody who wants policing scaled way, way back. You know, I want them taken out of mental health. I want them taken out of addiction. For the most part, I want them taken out of domestic violence. Most circumstances, you know, homeless, you know, dealing with the homeless, don't need the cops for that. Most things I want them to not participate in. There are a few things where I think, okay, somebody has to. If it isn't a cop, it's going to have to be somebody. No, yeah, and I agree. I think, I think for me, and I agree with uh, a lot of what you just said, I think for me, you know, for the the Willie Mae Kirks and that particular generation that either, you know, woefully or maybe, maybe they did on purpose um, the, that supported the 94 crime bill. Um, I, I get their concerns, right? Yeah, I, I'm going to be old one day and I'm going to like, you know, be, you know, the, the, the not so strong and I'll be vulnerable. And I would hope that um, there's this, this institution or thing that if I need them, I can call them. But, but, you know, I, I just, I'm hopeful that we can get to a place where, um, we as a society can respond to even the people that are committing harm and quote unquote crime again, because, you know, crime is something that I think we also need to, you know, like reimagine, right? Like is jaywalking really a crime, right? Like is giving somebody a ticket for walking across the street because the, the, the light is, a certain color um you know because i think but anyways that's a whole nother conversation um but I, I do think for me it comes down to this basic humanity that you know we are our greatest resource outside of the earth which we're killing and we can't afford to throw one another away uh, we can't afford to throw one another um in cages and prisons and we can't afford to have some of us think we have so much more authority over another because you know we put our hand on the bible and took an oath I, I think we have to understand that people that that are committing um you know violent crimes and that are causing harm are people too and you know i think it's a i think it's a way for us to react to those in a way that does not call for the way we have police today but i agree like i'm not saying let's not have you know th this group of individuals or community individuals that respond to crisis or harm but i think the way we respond to crisis and harm today is just unacceptable and depending on what you look like you you could be the one calling this thing for help and end up dead right because the, the way this institution works today is that through whatever fake news or whatever through the historical context of how we talk about black people in this country what, whatever the case may be People in the current institution of policing all around the country and possibly world, when they see black people, they automatically think something bad is going to happen. And I have to mitigate the situation because, you know, then they say the line because, you know, you know, my life was that I fear for my life, whatever they say.
Chaz, the changes to Austin's police budget have simultaneously been undersold and oversold, I would say. The governor and Matt Mackiewicz at the local Republican Party want to portray the cuts as crippling and draconian, while critics on the left called for zeroing out the police budget in four years and say these cuts fall short of that goal. At the Austin Justice Coalition, you called for $100 million in cuts. Be honest, when you called for cuts that large, could you point to what you wanted to cut at that moment? Absolutely not. No, no way. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I just knew... Um, as you know as a as a leading voice in the movement here and as a you know just as a strategist like we couldn't just keep saying defund the police defund the police we had to put an amount on it and you know <laughs> luckily i just work with some amazing people that trust me um and i, I said well, you know what about 100 million and everybody was kind of scratching their heads and um they said sure you know so we put that out um and for about two weeks luckily um and sadly, I, I guess I can say the media didn't ask us how we get that. <laughs> so um, that gave us time to, to work um, and, and do the, the, the math and do the work um, so we can actually show how we do that. But, but yeah, you know, I was just thinking, what's a good place to start um, to show that this city cares about, you know, um, Black Lives Matter, that it cares about the communities affected by policing? And I think, you know, I think 100 million out of 440 million is, is a pretty big chunk of change. It absolutely is. Mm. Well, and now to be clear, they only ended up actually, the actual cut cut was only 21 million. And I feel like that a lot of the sort of backlash from the governor and some of this has been based on the assumption that, oh, no, you cut one third of the police department budget. Well, no, we cut less than 5% of the police department budget. Mm-hmm. Um, so talk through what was actually done because there's been so much misinformation and people pretending that, oh, we're going to cut the, the crime labs and mm. we're going to cut internal affairs, but that's not really what happened. It, what's happening. So, so describe what was actually done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, I would, I would, I would argue that, that yes, that's the immediate cuts. The immediate cuts come from the, the cadet classes that we won't be having. Right. Um, if, and that's because the cadet process was all messed up and they had to revamp the training, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, that and, and the police department, right? Like, even if we had the most amazing cadet training, uh, we still have a very shitty police department, right? So, it, it you know, it's a meme of a little dog drinking his coffee in the house um, where he's like, oh, this is fine. Uh, like, why would you bring people into, like, this type of shit show? So, um, you, you know, it was just like, yeah, let, let's let's just take a break on adding more people into this burning house and that's where you know i think 20 21 million of the media cuts come from but but again like the, the 80 million that comes from what greg and the mayor have called decoupling to, to all the things that people were so nervous about you know victim services forensics um, the 911 call center those those budgets and you know none of that is being cut it's just not in the police department anymore right so it's not in a police department's budget um, but all those um, departments are still going to be fully functional. They'll just be independent of the police department. But I think it's also important to note that th that money won't be going back to the police department in like forever, <laughs> hopefully, if we keep it that way. And then I, I think the part that uh, we have to be diligent about is the part, the last part, the 47 million that comes from the reimagining public safety part, right? Like, and I, you know, I'm on the task force for that with 
Kathy, um, Chris Harris, Emily Garrick, a, a lot of amazing people. Um, and that's where we as a community and city um, officials get to hopefully um, r- really reimagine not only safety, but public safety and create new institutions or, you know, affinity groups, whatever you want to call it, that can respond to some of the things that we mentioned earlier, right? Like we, you and I agree, we don't need cops for um, substance abuse. We don't need cops for all domestic violence situations. We definitely don't need cops for homelessness. Like that 47 million will then go into investing in these new things that we create. Um, And that money, hopefully, one, hopefully we can use every dime of it so none of it goes back to the police department. But that money also won't be going back to the police department either, right? So, yeah, you know, I mean, but yeah, the fun, decouple, whatever you want to call it, the the plan is for this money not to go back to the police department. So, well, and it's a big reorganization of yeah. of the department. I mean, that's that's the thing I I feel like is getting missed in in a lot of the discussion is that okay, having the crime lab be independent is different from not having a crime lab. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 some of the demagog- demagoguery just assumes that you know. You, people here are just going to blow things up and, and and that's absolutely not the case yeah and you, you know i think another thing to note too is um that not one cop um was fired in the result of this budget stuff right like that that didn't like the police department didn't lose one officer um because of the city council vote now if they left on their own will hey you know whatever but like there was nothing that called for any cuts to any personnel in the current police department like right now right so that was another message that came from out of nowhere um because and i think you just wrapped it up beautifully it's all about saying you know what maybe we don't need the police to do these things and maybe we should try to let other people do these things because clearly when they do it somebody gets killed or raped or something right like we need to have people that can respond to crisis and harm without causing more crisis and harm right and that's what that's what the vote was all about and that's why you know it was a big deal you know um of course greg abbott responded to to the austin budget cuts by holding a press conference in fort worth where at first he announced that they were going to seek revenue caps for austin to punish them for for this and then more recently former state representative terry keel and and ron wilson um, out of Houston, who's a black Democrat, strangely enough, came out with this weird proposal to have the Department of Public Safety take over the Austin Police Department, uh, sort of in retaliation for these cuts. And I feel like, you know, this is at this point become a political football that has very little to do with what actually was done, right? I mean, the amount of actual cutting that's happening is so small that that can't be the real concern, but it's become this hair on fire situation. I, I'm, I'm less concerned about that than a lot of people, to be honest. I feel like, first off, if Democrats take control of the Texas House, it's not happening at all. It's just yep. not occurring. I feel like right now the police union is making noises like they're supportive of that idea because they want to spite the city council. But they don't really support that because look at what DPS troopers make compared to Austin Police Department. Mm -hmm. They don't want their salary in the hands of people who think that 
they should be paid 20000 a year less than they are. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I feel like the politics of actually having that happen seem very unlikely to me. No, yeah, and, you know, to, to me, on a very basic level, any, you know, state representative, state legislator that um, is willing to limit their own local municipalities <laughs> for making money because of what they choose to do around public safety um, is just, you know, that that's political suicide. That doesn't make sense to me. So, um, you you know, and uh, the, the more I think about it, I think um, this is all Republican fear mongering and jargon. Um, because as, as much as I am not looking forward to this election, um, for a lot of different reasons, um, I I have noticed that the Republicans efforts to demean and come after Joe Biden are not really working. So they're trying all this other stuff. Right. Um, and, and, you know, I think if, if, if you look and listen close enough, I think the Republicans are very much trying to get back to like this law and order type of um, um, vision and framework. So, you know, and all that, what Governor Abbott um, is talking about falls into that, right? Like, you know, back, he, he actually tweeted today, I think, back to blue, um, which up until that point, I was like, you know what? I would love to talk to the governor about these issues because I do still believe in civility. But, um, you know, people that say back to blue, you know, if you say back to blue, you're just a racist, period. Like, like that. That's that's all that means. Um, like when people say blue, li- like there's no such thing as a blue life. Like th- that's not a life. That's an occupation, right? right. Like the, you, I don't get to go home and take off my black skin and be another version of Chaz. Put the um, uniform in the closet, right? And- right, and just you know go watch Frasier for the for the night. But um, <laughs> it, it's it's um, so you know I think the fact that the governor is is clearly drawing a line in the sand and showing us where he stands is something that's very interesting. But I'm hopeful that our lawmakers are not going to, you know, go into like this weird, you know, state over, you know, because that's first of all, it's anti-Republican, right? They believe in like, you know, little government. <laughs> so now you're telling me the government is going to control how we do things. I, I don't know. This is very interesting. Now it's time for our rapid fire segment called The Last Hurrah. Chaz, are you ready? I'm in. Let's do it. The Austin Justice Coalition commissioned an analysis of Austin's 911 call center data and found that two-thirds of officer time is spent on things that aren't crimes. What are the implications of this finding? Cops don't do what we think they do. <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's the answer. In Dallas, police chief Renee Hall, a black woman, came under fire because an after-action report following the George Floyd protests seems to exonerate officers for alleged misconduct and accuse protesters of wanton violence in overstated terms. This she deserved the criticism. You know, I felt sorry for Renee Hall because, honestly, generations and generations of white police chiefs in Dallas have been feeding the media a line of horse shit and just expecting them to believe it and they always did and no one ever questioned them she fed them a line of horseshit and it really was horseshit but the world has changed and people aren't accepting that from the police anymore so in a way i feel sorry for her but a new day has dawned you know okay last one in houston last month members of the texas legislative black caucus unveiled texas george floyd act at a press conference with floyd's family 
The bill would restrict use of deadly force, eliminate qualified immunity for state civil rights suits, but not federal ones, require corroboration for undercover officers and drug stings, and finally ban most Class C misdemeanor arrests, a provision that was stripped out of the 2017 Sandra Bland Act. What do you think of this bill, Chaz, and what are its chances of passing? You know, I think the bill is um, definitely a step in the right direction. I think it's... um you know, full of things that um, we've been asking for and fighting for for years at the at the at the Pink Dome. I'm I'm hopeful that this year, because of the political climate, that we can actually get some criminal justice reform. But, but the way our governor is acting, I have no idea. That is totally the wild card. You're 100% right about that. All right, we're out of time, but we'll try and do better the next time. Until then, this is Scott Henson with Just Liberty. I'm Chaz Moore with the Austin Justice Coalition. You can subscribe to the Reasonably Suspicious Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, YouTube Podcasts, or SoundCloud. Or listen to it on my blog, Grits for Breakfast. We'll be back next month with more and hopefully better news. Until then, keep fighting for criminal justice reform. It's the only way it's going to happen. Um, Shout out to my team at Austin Justice Coalition and all our volunteers. Outstanding. Part, at least that's true. His silver hair and eyes of blue saved Austin from the bomber. That's what the TV said. But now he's a chief, and if his part's a pity, it didn't take long to most of the city could tell Brad Melly wasn't over his head. No confidence, no confidence, no confidence in you. The Austin City Council said to the chief with the eyes of blue. Much in love is certain, but we know this much is true. We got more belief in aliens than confidence in you. On June 12th, the Austin City Council unanimously voted to say they have no confidence in Police Chief Brian Manley's leadership, but the city manager still hasn't fired him. Now, the Austin Justice Coalition needs your help. Visionary change can't happen without visionary leaders. Go to austinjustice.org today to take action. Paid for by the Austin Justice Coalition.